And we'll cover the rest of 19 when we come back to Exodus in January. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, that is, on the third month, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Say this to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we've read your word, we've heard it read, and now we're going to hear it preached. God, we pray that you would bless it, that you would do that for which you have intended it, that you would open up our hard hearts, that you would open up our blind eyes, that you would unstop our deaf ears. Lord, help us to see what you have for us in these verses. God, teach us what it means to be your people, to follow you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to to give you a little bit of context, I want to jump back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 is where Moses meets God for the first time. And it happens on this same mountain, on Mount Sinai. Moses has already been here once. If you remember, he was shepherding his father-in-law's flock, minding his own business, when he just so happened to see a bush that that was burning. Except that it wasn't burning up. It wasn't being consumed, which is a little odd to be sure. And so uh, Moses goes to check it out. And when he does, God speaks to him from the burning bush. Right. In fact, what he says is, don't come any closer. Take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. And so the word of this God is both an invitation and a warning that there is someone uh, who is speaking out of this bush that uh, whose word is serious and is not to be taken lightly and yet calls us into something more. And so uh, Moses uh, draws near to the burning bush and God proceeds to tell him, here's what I want you to do. I've heard my people's cries. They're in slavery in Egypt and I want you to go get them. And Moses says this in chapter 11. Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, king of the most powerful empire on the planet. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the Lord said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Here we are. Exodus 19 is one more proof that God keeps his word. Here they are arriving at the very mountain that God told Moses he would bring them to. And so Israel has been rescued. Now 
they will come to know their rescuer. And this says something important to us. This is actually the purpose of our salvation. As one pastor put it, we are, we are purchased for a purpose. And that's the, that's the whole overarching theme of the rest of this book. That God not only saves his people, but he saves, them to dr- he saves us to draw us into fellowship with him. If that were not true... This book would have ended at the Red Sea, right? Chapter Exodus chapter 15 would have been the last chapter in the book. And it would have gone something like this, right? Israel goes through the Red Sea. Uh, Egypt's last forces are, are crushed by the Red Sea. We sing this great worship song. And then God looks at Israel and says, okay, thank you guys for coming along. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, we'll see you later. All right. Love you. Call me if you need me. And have a, have a good trip. All right. But that's not what God does, does he? Right? In fact, he told Moses from the very beginning, I'm going to get my people out and I'm going to bring them into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so God saves us to bring us into relationship with him. And it says something pretty important, that the part of the story we remember is is really the shortest part of the book. The part of the story we remember is the salvation part. But then... What we don't think as much about is what happens from, like, they will spend the next year at Mount Sinai, right? The rest of this book, on into Leviticus, uh, and on into Numbers. How's that for exciting, right? Um, they, they will spend the next year of their lives with the Lord, sitting at Mount Sinai, listening to him, right? Or receiving his word from Moses. So, what, is that, what does that tell you? It tells us, it tells us this. That our initial salvation is only part of the process. But could it be that the reason so many of us have a stunted growth in Christianity is because our, our, we, we've only heard a stunted gospel, right? We kind of hit this wall where we've heard, right, that, okay, Jesus died so that my sins would be forgiven. Stop. And that's only part of the message, friend. Jesus, yes, did die so that your sins could be forgiven. But that is not why Jesus came to die. That is not, that is not the purpose of God's grace. God's saving grace is not simply for the end of your forgiveness. And so, parents, you know, when, when you share the gospel with your children, first, let's avoid yes or no questions, right? You know, do you love Jesus? Yes. Do you want to go to hell? No. All right, there we go, right? That's not, that is not a complete enough message. The message is that God has saved us to make us his own. God has forgiven us, yes, but he's also given us his Holy Spirit so that we can walk with him. And so there, the reason I think that many of us are stuck is because many of us have a very truncated gospel and a very truncated view of grace. We have not traced grace all the way out, all the way uh, out to its end. This is the why of God's grace. The why of God's grace is that we would walk in relationship with him. God saves us, brings us out to bring us in. This is the why of God's grace, and it contrasts greatly with kind of the popular notion of the get-out-of-hell-free card, right? If that is your view of the salvation that Christianity offers, it is a very small view, and it is a very man-centered view. God does not save us simply for ourselves. God saves us for himself. 
God saves us to make us his own. And this is what Exodus 19 does. It it introduces us to the rest of the story. So that's our main idea. We are brought out of slavery to walk in relationship with God. And we're just going to look at this opening speech under three headings. What God has done, what God promises, and the link between the two. What God has done, what God promises, and the link between the two. All right? And we're going to primarily look at it through the lens of verses 4 through 6. So before we, before we dive in, there's one more thing we need to talk about. And it's this idea of covenant. You heard me mention it when I baptized Lily and Bella. If you don't really grasp covenant, you don't really grasp the Bible. And I can say that it's true because your Bible is actually broken into two parts. Old Testament, New Testament. That word testament is covenant. Your Bible is broken into covenant terms, old covenant, new covenant, okay? And the story of God's covenant actually structures the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. And so to really understand what's going on in the Bible, we really have to begin to grapple and understand this idea of covenant, God's covenant with his people. A covenant, so in the ancient, uh, so what is that? In the ancient East, in the world of Abraham and Moses, in the world of the Old Testament, a great king would make a covenant or a treaty with a lesser people, right? Either if he had defended, defended them from an enemy or had conquered them and brought them into his empire, what happened next was a covenant. And that covenant involved three parts. The first part, this king, this great king, would talk about his kindness or what he had done. That was the introduction. So we see in verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Right. So a covenant always opens with the king saying, here's what I have done. Then the second part would be this uh, would be would be the longest section. And it would talk about what it meant to be faithful to your king, to your new king. Right. And that was the law portion. Right. All of the different stipulations in the treaty. You will do this. You won't do this. That was part of the covenant. Right. That's, That's what the servant would agree to. And then they would finish with consequences, either blessing or curses. If you keep the covenant, blessing. If you don't keep the covenant, curses. This was a common form in Moses' day, and it's actually uh, a co- common in the Bible. The whole book of Deuteronomy is one long covenant document. Okay? Uh, Kevin, why in the world does that matter? Here's why, here's why it matters to us. Not just if you go on Jeopardy someday, but here's why that matters. What's happening at on Mount Sinai is not new. It actually began 430 years prior to this with a man named Abraham. You see, actually, prior to Abraham, the world was an absolute wreck. So listen, if you think that things are really bad now, just take a, just take a jaunt through the first part of Genesis, okay? Um, things probably aren't much worse than they were then. Okay, the world was an absolute wreck. It was wrecked by human sin. It was wrecked by human idolatry and selfishness. No one was recognizing that God was the creator and everyone is under God's wrath until God chooses this this man named Abram. And he comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and he makes him some promises. He tells him to follow him. And of the different promises he makes, he wraps it all up by saying, and you will be a blessing 
to the world. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And you and your offspring will be a blessing to the world. So the whole world will be blessed through Abram. Right? Fast forward 400 years and Abram's children, Abram's descendants have grown. But they are enslaved in Egypt. Which God told Abraham would happen. Right? Um, so... God brings them out of slavery and brings them to this mountain and he tells them that he is now going, that they need to keep the covenant. They're not making a new covenant with God. They are confirming the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, okay, Kevin, I still don't understand what this has to do with me or why it matters. One, it matters for how you read the Bible. But two, if this doesn't happen, there's no reason for Jesus to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and even... Of the covenant with Moses. Okay? And we'll unpack that a little bit. But. So this is really just the next step. What's happening right now is just the next step in Israel's relationship with the Lord. This is what, this is what comes next. It's not a new thing. Um, notice first on what God has done. That that's where all the emphasis is. Right? Look at, uh, look at verse 4. You yourselves. So Moses actually puts an extra you in the sentence. It would read like this. You, you have seen. Right. What is he? What's he saying? You yourselves. Right. The emphasis on you. Y'all have seen what I have done. Right. Not like Jethro that we met last week, who has only heard about what I've done. No, you've actually seen it. You have witnessed firsthand what I have done to save you. You see, you saw what I did to Egypt. You saw the plagues. You saw the Red Sea. You saw the Passover. You've seen how I bore you on eagle's wings. Right. How I how I carried you right through the through the desert. I gave you bread from the sky and water from the rock so that you wouldn't die. I defended you from your enemies. I fought battles for you. Even as you were fighting, I was winning the battle. So I bore you on eagle's wings, right? You, it's not like you were on top of the eagle making the wings flap. I did this for you. You saw what I did. You see what I did to Egypt. You've seen how I how I how I carried you on eagle's wings and how I've brought you to myself. All of the emphasis is on what God has done on God's action. He's the one who humbled and wrecked Egypt. He's the one who provided bread and quail and water. He's the one who defeated Amalek. What's the point? This is all about grace. This all that God has done for Israel is all about his grace and mercy. There are no, there are no self-made men here. There, there are no self-made men, right? God's telling them, your cleverness didn't bring you to Mount Sinai. Your strength didn't bring you to Mount Sinai. It didn't get you out of Egypt. It didn't keep you alive. I did. In fact, if you've been with us for this series and you've seen Israel's behavior... You probably are kind of like, why in the world would God continue to put up with these people? That tells you this is about grace. That tells you that it's all of God's mercy. Because their, even their response to what God has done has not been very good. In fact, what they, have, they have continued to complain and to gripe about whether or not God is going to provide. Is God going to just kill us and leave us in the desert? Right? So, grace... Cannot, what God has done cannot be earned or paid for, or it would cease to be grace. 
And this is so crucial to understanding what's coming next. Because God is about to unveil for them his law. And we have a real hard time with law. Right? If we're honest, we don't even like the laws we're supposed to keep. Oh, wait, that's all of them. Um, right? Don't, don't raise your hands. But how many of you actually obey the speed limit all the time? Right? Don't raise your hands because even the people who are raising their hands, self-righteous. All right? So, um, right, we don't, we, don't, we don't like law. Right? There's something, there's something in our hearts that begrudges someone else telling us what we are to do or are not to do. Right? And so... When I, when I say that God is about to give Israel his law, in fact, that that's actually what takes up the rest of the book. Um, most of us are like, man, I thought this was about grace. I mean, it's on the sign. It says grace fellowship, not law fellowship, right? So, so when I say law, we, kinda, we, we really struggle and wrestle to figure out, okay, where, where, does this, where does this fit in? Where does this idea fit in to Grace, and, and this is where it is, right here. Grace is the foundation upon which the law of God is built. The law is not given to Israel so that they can earn their place with God. What verse 4 tells us is that they've already got their place and they didn't earn it. They are, they've already been freed. They've already been saved. The law does not save them. Grace is what has saved them, and grace will keep carrying them. The law is how they walk in that grace. All right, and we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to repeat that over and over again as we walk through the Ten Commandments uh, in the coming year. Okay? Grace comes before the law. Grace empowers the law. Right? That's, that's where the law fits in. Grace is always the foundation to everything else. And th- this is why this is important. Because when I first became a Christian, I thought, here's, my understanding of Christianity was this. Jesus breaks me even, and then it's up to me to keep my nose clean from there. Is that, has, anybody, has anybody ever thought that about Christianity? That, that it's Jesus, okay, so I'm down here, and then because of what Jesus has done, I'm up here. But now that Jesus has accomplished that, it's up to me to keep up with God, right? As long as I, as long as I keep my nose clean, I won't forfeit any of the things that God has done, right? And when we believe that, we, become, we, we begin to live on this treadmill of acceptance or rejection. So you need to hear in verse 4 that that is, that that is not what God intends for his people, right? What God intends for his people is Bought by grace, continue in grace. The law comes out of grace. The law is how we walk with God, not how we earn God's favor. Okay? Uh, it's, like, it's like a child. So we've got Christmas coming up, and so I want everyone in the room to think about uh, either the greatest gift you've ever gotten or the one gift. What do you think about the one gift that would absolutely make your Christmas if it were under the tree on December the 25th? All right, so everybody, think about what that one gift would be. And then imagine, right, that you get to open that gift and you're just overjoyed and you're so thankful. And then you run and you grab your wallet 
and you try to, or, or your checkbook, because, you know, for many of us, that gift is probably a little bit more than what you got in the wallet, uh, right? And you begin to write a check. So wives, maybe you start writing a check to your husband. Uh, or, or kids, maybe you like break open the piggy bank and you, to carry some cash to your parents, right? Here, let me, let me make a start. The person who gave you that gift would look at you like you were absolutely out of your mind, right? Because it's a gift, it's a Christmas gift. I give it to you freely. I'm not, expecting, uh, I'm not expecting for you to pay me back or it ceases to be a gift. And yet we do that with our salvation. We do that with God. We try to earn what he has already given. And we try to do that through the law. Friend, the law is not intended to work that way. And when you try to work the law that way, you end up in a pretty scary place. And Jesus and Paul have a lot to say about that in the New Testament. When we try to use God's law to earn God's favor, we end up in a worse spot. Because there's no way that we can possibly earn what God has given us. That's called legalism. It's called Phariseeism. It's called self-righteousness. And it will kill you. Right? And so we have to understand right out of the gate that all of this is... Founded in what God has already done. It's founded, the foundation of God's relationship with his people is always and forever his grace. It's what he has done, not what we have done. All right, let's look down at the end of verse 5. So what God has done to what God promises. We're going to come back and cover the, the dreaded if. If you will indeed obey, we're going to talk about that. But before we do, I just want to look, I want to look at what God promises to us in verses 5 and 6 so that you get a sense of what is held out in front of Israel. He says, you will be my treasured possession. All right, it's not a, this is not a very common word. It's used uh, fairly often throughout the Old Testament. But treasured possession. So to, to get the sense of this... I want you to try to go back to a world in which the king owned everything. All right? We don't have that world now, but if, if we were in Moses' day, we would, right? If, for many empires, the, the king literally owned everything. It was all technically his, right? If the king rode up to your farm and said, hey, I need five sheep, you would go get the five best ones, right? That was just how it went, all right? But God says, you will be my treasured possession this this hebrew word talks about a treasure that the king the the apple of the king's eye right this is this is i own everything else but this is what i really enjoy this is what i really love this is really mine right if you grew up in the 80s uh you grew up maybe watching ducktales anybody all right um scrooge mc scrooge mcduck for those of you who weren't so blessed to watch DuckTales, Scrooge McDuck has this huge vault, and it's full of money. And every day, right, Scrooge runs to the end of his diving board, and he jumps off of the diving board and he, into his piles of money. Physics don't really apply in cartoons, right? So Scrooge would swim in all of this money he had in his vault. But it was not his treasured possession, his treasured possession was his first dime, the first dime that he ever earned, and he kept it protected in this little glass case on top of this pedestal. He called it his lucky dime. So even though Scrooge had all of this other money, what he really treasured, his treasured possession was his lucky dime. God tells Israel, you will be my treasured possession. All the earth is mine. 
You know what? I, I own everything. I'm the creator. I'm the king. But you are close to me. You are the apple of my eye. I treasure you more than anything else. You will be my treasured possession. He says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. So a priest, what a priest did is they had special access. That was, that was the, that's the word for priest, okay? The priest is the one who had special access into God's presence. He could draw near when no one else could. God says, all of you, in this covenant, all of you will have access to me. The whole of you. Not one special group of you, but the whole of you will be to me a kingdom of priests. You will be close to me. You can draw near to me. And then there's another side of this. Not only could the priest be the one who draws close to God, but he also represented God to the rest of the world. And so, if Israel keeps the covenant... Not only will they have special access, but they also have the privilege of representing God to the other nations. They have the privilege of inviting people to come and know God. To say, we know the truth. We have the real God. We want you to know him. Come to this God. Be one with us. That was what it meant to be a kingdom of priests. A whole kingdom of royal priests. And if you, and if you don't think that would be odd... I want you to think about this, that for, in Israel's day, every other religion was polytheistic, right? And what that means is they worshipped many gods. And so, Israel was not powerful, right? And if you weren't powerful as a nation, it meant your God wasn't powerful. So here's a, so here a recently freed slave people wandering around in the desert, okay, uh, and they get the responsibility of welcoming other people to come know the one true God. That would have been very countercultural. It would have been very strange. It would have been very uncomfortable for them. They were basically saying, we know the truth. We have the truth. You come to us and hear the truth. Right? Um, so that was, no, that was no less... If you like, We would say the same today... Uh, that was no less awkward or difficult in Israel's day than it would be in our own. But that's what God says. You will be to me a kingdom of priests. You have special access, special privileges. And then he says, and a holy nation. That word nation is used most often to refer to the pagan nations who don't worship God. Right? It's the word goy, goyim. It's, the, it's all the other people. And so when God says, you will be to me a holy nation, he's basically saying, you're not any different from anybody else. There is nothing in you, Israel, that makes you any more special than any of them. You're just another nation until I set my love on you. And then you will be to me a holy nation. A better word for our context would be a different nation, a set-apart nation. That word holy means that God comes in and he takes what is common and normal and even opposed to him and brings it out and sets it apart for himself. It's what he says about the mountain, right? Uh, as we proceed through these verses, you'll see that the mountain is called holy. Listen, the mountain was not holy just because of itself. 
This mountain was no different from any other, any other of the mountains on this peninsula. The reason the mountain was holy is because God came down on it and made his presence there. The reason Israel would be holy is because they had been brought out and brought in to his presence. They would be holy as they walked with the Holy One. Okay, so you will be my treasured possession. I will cherish you more than any other nation on the planet. Which means if you have not yet come to grips with the reality that God is a choosing God, here is another place where you see it. Right? Here's how, here's how Moses puts it in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, you are a people Holy to the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy 7, 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Same word. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. You got you to deal with the fact that God chooses the people that he is going to rescue. And the reason that's a beautiful thing and not a scary thing is because if God were to be fair... Or if God were to leave us to our own devices, no one would be rescued at all. The truth that God elects some is proof of his grace. The truth that God chooses Israel is proof of his grace, not of their superiority. So, if, listen, if you're, if you're one of those reformed people who just loves the doctrine of predestination and you use it like a hammer to hit other people in the head with, you don't get it. All that, all that predestination or election is, it just, just shows, that, just shows that, that God saves some by his grace. God rescues some by his grace. He steps in. He doesn't, he doesn't say to all the nations, I own all of you and you're all my treasured possession. No, he looks at all the nations and he says, I own all of you, but this one, this one will be a treasured possession to me. And the reason he gives in Deuteronomy 7, he tells Israel, it's not because you're more special it's not because you're bigger or better or smarter or prettier. It's simply because I love you. God's choosing is the origin of God's choosing is found in the depths of his unfathomable love. That's nowhere else. God says, I love you because I love you. That's it. All right. So that's uh, what God promises. He promises to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We've seen what God has done. We've seen what God promises to do. Now, let's look at this link between the two there in chapter 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. Now, wait a second. Kevin, you just spent a lot of time talking about God's grace before. And God's grace after. And that we don't earn any of it. So what is this if doing in the middle of the past and the future? What is this, what is this business about hearing my voice and keeping my covenant? Let's say this. The if applies to enjoying, not earning. God has already purchased Israel. He's already brought Israel to himself. And so it would, it would run counter to that if God were to say, all right, now, if you'll keep obeying me, I won't send you back to Egypt. He doesn't say that, right? If you keep obeying me, 
you won't forfeit everything we've worked so hard to get here. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, if you will keep my covenant, therefore you will be. Right? So let's focus on the therefore. The therefore is important, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Uh, think about the book of Romans after Paul spends 11 chapters talking about the beauty of God's grace to us in Jesus, how it conquers the law, how we conquer sin and death, how we're justified freely by his grace, uh, election, all of those things, Romans 1 through 11. Then in verse 12, he says, therefore, and he spends the rest of the book telling them how to live in light of what God has done. The if is about enjoyment, not earning. The if is about enjoyment, not earning. The saving has been done. The status has been granted. But here's what God is saying. You can only enjoy the saving and you can only enjoy the status if you walk with me. It's like saying, uh, as one pastor said it, the condition of experiencing your vacation is that you enjoy the sunsets. You're on vacation. Are you going to enjoy the sunset or not? Right? Uh, you, you are... The condition you must meet to benefit from your vacation is to enjoy the sunset. That's what, that's what God is saying to his people. Here's what I've done. Here is what you will be. You've got to walk with me if you want this. You've got to walk with me to enjoy the benefits of what I've done. Okay? Uh, so, what are those conditions? The first thing he says is, listen to my voice. Uh, verse 5, if you will indeed, the word there is listen to my voice. It's the word Shema, the word hear. Uh, I had a, a student of mine. I remember often going to visit him at home with his family. And his mom would often tell him, Johnny, take the trash down to the trash can. And I heard her. And his siblings heard her, and yet he would not budge to take the trash down to the can, right? Now, so I, I know that he, I, I know that he heard her, right? I know that I know that his brain processed that sound had left his mother's mouth and entered into his auditory senses. Okay, so he heard her, but he hadn't heard her, or what would he have done? He would have taken the trash, right? When God says, listen to my voice, it's a listening that leads to obedience. It's a listening that leads to following him. It's not just, oh, God has spoken, uh, but God has spoken and therefore I will do, right? Uh, it's doing the word, not just hearing the word. Again, God is a speaking God who reveals his will to his people and his requirement is that we listen and obey it. And then he says this, if you will listen to my voice and keep my covenant. Now, they don't know what this means yet. They haven't gotten, this is, this is, we could say, this is God's initial offer to them. Here's what I've done. Here's what, here's what our relationship will be like. Will you keep my covenant or not? Right? And as we're going to see, Moses will go down the mountain, present all of this, and they'll say, yep, sounds good. Right. They don't even know yet what's about to come. They don't know all the stipulations. They don't know all the laws. They don't know how all this is going to work out. But God says, if you want to if you want to enjoy my blessings, you need to walk with me in this. And that means keeping the covenant. Um, 
This does not mean sinless perfection. God is not calling them to sinless perfection. He's not saying, you can enjoy my blessings if you will do everything right and do nothing wrong. Right? That's, cause, so maybe that's part of our problem when it comes to understanding the law, is we think that walking in God's law means we have to walk perfectly. And that's not, that's not what God is calling them to do. God is saying, you need to listen to my voice, you need to follow me, and you need to, and you need to keep my covenant. But that doesn't mean that he's calling them to a flawless... Here's, here's why I know that to be true. The law, the covenant includes law, what to do and what not to do. But it also includes sacrifices, what you do when you fail. Right? So here we go. The covenant includes how to walk and what you do when you fall. Right. It includes both things that this is this is what holy people look like. This is what holy people do. And when you live like unholy people, here's what you do. Right. That that that's both parts of the covenant. So God is not expecting flawless perfection. What he is expecting is faith. What he is expecting is trust. That's really what God is calling his people to. He says, if you will. If you want to enjoy these blessings that I have purchased for you, I need you to trust me. I need you to walk with me in faith. I'm not asking that you, I'm not, I'm not saying you've got to get an A plus on every test. I've made provisions for that. I know that you can't do that. But I am asking that you walk with me. Which, by the way, is the one thing that Israel seemed to be unable to do. In fact, They don't even get away from Mount Sinai. In fact, the covenant is not even finally written before they leave him. Right? Uh, We're going to see a scene several chapters from now where Moses is on the mountaintop and and he's talking with God and he's writing with his finger the law covenant down. Right? And as they're... Talking as Moses is meeting with God on the mountain. Do you know what Israel's doing at the bottom of the mountain? They're making a golden calf. They're making a new idol to worship. They think that God's already forgotten them. Or they don't know. They, they come to Aaron and they say, hey, listen, we don't know what happened to Moses, but uh, you ready to go? If you could just make for us a new God, we'll get on the road and off to the land of milk and honey. Sound good? So Israel... Israel can't even get away from the mountain before they've broken the covenant, right? As we would say, the, the concrete isn't even dried yet, right? The, 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 ink, the ink on the contract isn't even dry yet before they've already broken the contract. How like them we are. That we don't even, we, we won't even exit this room this holy place before we've broken the covenant that God has made with us. Before we dishonor the one who has saved us and made us his own. And so that means that we have to have someone else. Someone else who will come along and will keep the law where we fail to keep the law. Someone who will keep the covenant that we cannot keep. Someone who will be God's treasured possession. In fact, has been God's treasured possession from all of eternity. No one is loved by the Father more than the Son. Someone who will be a royal priest. 
who has special access to God and who welcomes the nations to come to him. Someone who will be holy. Someone who will be different, set apart, special. And that person is Jesus. And he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And because of Jesus, then all of these things that Moses says here are true of us. I want to fast forward about 2,000 years to a man named Peter. You may know Peter. Peter made uh, some serious promises to Jesus. He told Jesus that he would never leave him. He told Jesus that even if all of the other disciples uh, were to abandon Jesus, Peter would never abandon Jesus. He was no coward. His, his faith, right, he was strong like bull, right? He, is, he, would, he would stick when no one else was going to stick. And what did Peter do? As soon as the mighty Peter, the rock, was confronted by a servant girl outside the high priest's house, he caved and he cursed himself not once, but three times. Peter, within eyeshot of Jesus, like Israel, within eyeshot of the mountain. At the first moment's pressure, runs away and clings to something else. Peter denies Jesus and has to be restored later by Jesus. That Peter says this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Same language, but you notice there's no future tense. Not you will be, but you are. You are a, ro a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is it that transforms a not people to people? What is it that makes those who would run away from God as quick as they can, what is it that makes them a treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? It is the mercy of God in Jesus. Peter couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. And friend, you can't do it either. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to be for us, a priest for us, so that we can then in turn proclaim his excellencies to the world. We live out of that identity. Grace comes before the law. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray that you would bless these truths to our understanding. Lord, as we continue to grapple uh, with your law in the coming weeks and your holiness and what that means, God, would you help us to understand your truth? Would you help us to understand, help us to understand your holiness, that we are not to trifle with you? 
but that you and your grace have brought us near. You and your grace have carried us on eagle's wings, not out of mere physical slavery to some superpower, though that would be awful enough. No, you've rescued us from our sin. You've rescued us from ourselves. You've rescued us from the devil. And we of all people should be glad to live out of that identity. God, you have called us treasured. You have called us priests. You have called us holy. Would you cause us to live into that by your grace? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing.